Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the opening night of the seventh season of Airtime. I'm going to uh, turn it very quickly over to the artistic director, Kitty Goddard. But Airtime is presented by the Arts Incubator of Richardson in partnership with the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in Richardson, Texas. Airtime is a signature artist interview series featuring artists and creative thinkers in the Richardson and Dallas-Fort Worth area, where artists share about their art and why their creativity makes a difference. Airtime is funded in part through the generosity of Eric Wise with Wealthstar Advisors and through a grant from the City of Richardson Cultural Arts Commission. And it is led by the fearless and creative Kitty Goddard, who has a few words of wisdom for us before we start. Thank you, David. And first of all, don't believe everything that you hear. Anyway, I very quickly welcome to everybody for a wonderful sold-out premiere of our first of airtime for season seven. We're delighted all of you could be here. What a validation. Uh, we are pleased tonight to be in partnership with the Richardson Reads One Book Program, hence the book that we will be featuring in the movie Spare Parts. They have tickets here for the event next Tuesday, which is to hear the author, Joshua Davis, in person at Richardson High School. It's a free event, but you do need a ticket. So we encourage you to pick those up. I believe they are on the Half Price Books the hand that is up over here has the tickets. So check with her, and she may put some on that back counter back there so you can easily get them on your way out. Quickly, all of you have in front of you a survey that is in partnership with the Americans for the Arts as well as the City of Richardson Cultural Arts Commission. This survey is really critical in gathering information which is confidential, but it will help in determining the economic impact of the arts in the area which then directly affects funding that the arts organizations receive. Please fill it out, and you can leave it on the back counter on your way out. Um, we appreciate your doing that. Um, also, there's a flyer at your spot. This says North Texas Giving Day, which is next Thursday. Um, we encourage you to go to the website here, which is northtexasgivingday.org. Find in the alphabetical listing, AIR and give $25 or more. But if everybody in here gave $25, our goal is to bring in 6,000. If everybody in this room tonight gave $25, we would be more than halfway to our goal. That would be $3,875 approximately. But we really do encourage you to give because on this particular day, other entities in the North Texas area multiply what gifts are made. So that's 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., please go and give. We thank you in advance. The $6,000 would go to not only promote continued stellar funding like airtime, but also we are planning an incredible fourth pop-up art event in the spring of 2017, and your funds would be greatly appreciated. Also, welcome back to our moderator, Mr. David Fisher, who is the Assistant Director of the Dallas Office of Cultural Affairs. And with that, I will turn the program back over to David and Dr. Greg and our guest student, Dario Villarreal. Thank you, Kitty. And thank you, everyone, for being here. It is September 14th, 2016, and today's creative guests are Dr. Robert Gregg, the Assistant Professor of Bioengineering and Mechanical Engineering and the Director of the Locomotor Control Systems Laboratory, I wanted to say laboratory, at the University of Texas at Dallas, and 
the almost doctor, Dario Villarreal, who is Dr. Greg's first PhD student and who is about to get his doctorate in biomedical engineering. So let's welcome our guests. Likewise, we'd also like to welcome our partners here from the Richardson Reads One Book. Uh, as Kitty said, the book uh, for this year was Spare Parts, uh, which centers on four Latino teenagers in Arizona who enter a national underwater robotics competition. And the movie is based on that book as well. So um, let's start out just with some basic information. Uh, you are both in a very specialized field of work and research, uh, one that Dario described as the pinnacle of engineering, in that it requires you to know mechanics, electronics, computer science, math, biology, and anatomy, or as in, in uh, Dr. Gregg's bio, it says, the boundary between engineering and medicine. So tell us about your work and how it is that you were drawn into this field. <laughs> well, um, I took a, a long journey into where the position I am right now. Um, it started as uh, just a high school student interested in computer science. And uh, that, that drew me into, into my major in college, which was electrical engineering and computer science. At some point, I discovered that with electrical engineering uh, and computer science, you could begin building robots and, and to study the science of controlling machines. And so from that point on, my uh, curiosity was sparked and I decided that uh, after my undergraduate studies, I really knew little to nothing at all <laughs> in terms of things that I wanted to know, which, uh, uh, which, which brought me into graduate school. Um, and from there, I studied robotics and, and did research in walking robots. And after graduating there, I decided that I would like to do some, some good for, for humanity. So instead of building uh, Terminator machines, I decided to work uh, on prosthetics and exoskeletons, although the technologies are similar between those two topics. Um, and. Uh, I ended up working at a hospital for three years, learning from clinicians, learning how to speak the language of clinicians and medical doctors. And uh, after that, I started my own laboratory here in Dallas. And here we are now. <laughs> and you, Dario? So for my, for my case, it was different. I come from, from Mexico. So after high school, I, I didn't know if I wanted to study to go to med school or engineering. I decided to go to engineering uh, to study robotics. And I just mentioned it's really challenging. So that's what drawn me into it. Um, and then uh, I did an internship while I was doing my, my undergrad at UT Dallas. And then I knew uh, there was this professor that was going to join the department that was going to do exoskeletons and prosthetic legs, uh, robotic prosthetic legs. Uh, and I was really excited. So I contacted Professor Greg. And he accepted me, <laughs> surprisingly. Uh, but I mean, uh, at the end, I, I got a fellowship to come here to the United States. Uh, and I've been studying my PhD since. Well, so um, tell us a little bit about the, when you, uh, in the email uh, that I got from you, said you were going to bring one of the exoskeletons. And I was imagining an Iron Man suit. <laughs> as an exoskeleton, been that back when I was studying science, an exoskeleton for me was a crawfish. Mm -hmm. That was what uh, science meant for me. So tell us about this, what you're wearing, and uh, how it was developed, and what it can do. And So this exoskeleton over here was uh, designed and built by a lot of members, uh, led by uh, the gentleman there, uh, Leon. Uh, so 
it's a uh, it's part of his uh, PhD uh, thesis, and the idea is uh, that you're going to control the exoskeleton to help uh, people that suffer a stroke and they cannot walk uh, like we walk. And uh, with the exoskeleton, you're going to be helping them to achieve that goal. Uh, it has two motors, uh, one for the for the knee and one for the ankle, and it helps sustain the the weight of the person as well as help. Uh, pushing him forwards while walking. So how would this be different from an exoskeleton from an amputee? So for, uh, for an a prosthetic, it's yeah, going to be exactly. a different, different word. So it's, it's different. An exoskeleton, you call it because it's something you put on top of your skeleton, right? So uh, here I have my leg, so I can just wear it on top of it. Uh, for, a, for an amputee, they're missing that, that, the limb, basically. Uh, so in that case, it becomes more challenging because now you I can balance myself if I'm wearing the exoskeleton, but for an amputee, they, they don't have that extra part of their leg to balance themselves. So you need to be really careful when designing prosthetic legs uh, to take that into account. So in, in, in looking at your uh, websites and YouTubes and things, it's obvious that these are very different from the prosthetics that we've known through history, whether that's Ahab's leg or Captain Hook's hook or or even I mean I, re, I can remember even recently seeing a 3d printed claw hand that was able to you know give this boy the ability to to grasp something so how is how are these prostheses either in philosophy or just technology different than these others yeah so, so I can comment on that a little bit uh, so a lot of time and energy is, is, is spent designing and, and, and producing the, the conventionally available prosthetic legs. And, and you know, they may have springiness, they may have some intelligence, some, some, some computation and control, but the thing is they are still fundamentally using the same concept that's existed for, for decades, for 50 years, um, which is that uh, they, they essentially are, are providing a rigid structure for you to walk on, but they are not providing the power, propulsion, and and stability properties that your your biological limb would be. So, so to be more precise, walking on a conventional prosthesis is kind of like walking on stilts. Um, you're, you're you're trying your best to, to maintain your balance because it's not doing anything to to inject energy or to to absorb energy to 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 reject any disturbances. Um, and so that's essentially what our muscles do in our biological limbs. And, and current conventional prostheses just can't really do that. Um, so we are trying to replicate the function of the muscles by using sensors, computation, and control. And the control comes from the motors. And so we have all those things on this exoskeleton um, so that it can help essentially reproduce the missing muscle function, in this case for a a potential stroke patient, unfortunately, the Rio here is not is not a stroke patient, but um, he is demonstrating how one would wear it, and uh, and so uh, in future experiments, we'll actually be trying to show that um, by adding computation and control, that we could actually help people more so than conventional devices can today. Now, is there also balance uh, into these? Because I know balance is both your ear, your eyes, and your feet. So. Yeah. How, how does this help with that? Does it have sensors and just like yeah, yeah, it, just yeah. like your ears so, would? So just like your inner ears can measure the the orientation of your head and your body with respect to gravity or ground, um, we have little sensors 
in, uh, the, in the exoskeleton or the prosthesis that can measure the very same um, orientation, um, and that allows the exoskeleton to pr promote balance. So were you robot fans as kids? Did you have them on your desks and shelves and... Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't a... I didn't have a lot of, like, toys like Transformers and stuff, but yeah, I, I watched uh, all the TV shows. I was always drawn by uh, uh, robotics, uh, different TV shows uh, related to robotics and books. Uh, but yeah, I guess, uh, like I was saying, it's the, the ultimate idea of making this machine that can think for itself and take decisions without you telling you telling it what to do. It's uh, really interesting. So, yeah. so uh, when I was introducing you, I mentioned mechanics, electronics, computer science, math, and anatomy and biology. But that leaves out the one big factor, which is the human factor, that you're actually making these for human beings. And w without going into the the uh, the robot making decisions for the human being, how do you take that human factor into account when you're when you're doing this? So at least in terms of the prosthetic leg, uh, when you're designing controllers, which is basically like designing the software that is going to be used on the on the motors, uh, you want it to to be safe for uh, for amputees, uh, for example. Uh, so a good analogy will be uh, you want the prosthetic leg to be like a, like a horse, basically. Like if you're riding a horse and you get to a cliff, the horse will know that you should stop. <laughs> so uh, it's the same thing with the, with the prosthetic leg. Uh, you want to have a perfect synchronization between the, the human and the machine, but at, at the same time, the machine to be smart enough to keep the person in balance. How much of the human's adoption of the prosthesis has to do with their own attitude. I read somewhere that a, a large percentage of people wearing prosthesis stop wearing them because it's just too much work to wear it. A absolutely, yeah. So, so the, the, the fact is that a lot of prostheses end up hanging out in closets. Um, and, and that, I think, has a lot to do with the, the cost-benefit analysis. Uh, you know, it takes time to put on the prosthesis. It is uncomfortable to wear the prosthesis. Um, you sweat, and your sweat pools up into what you call the socket or the, or the liner, which encapsulates the residual limb of, of the amputation site. And you also get uh, skin sores from pressure, all sorts of, of uncomfortable things. And if this prosthesis is like walking on stilts, maybe you can get along, get around better in a wheelchair. Um, so some people make that decision to give up the prosthesis and get around in a wheelchair. Uh, what we think will happen is once we have prostheses that better replicate the function of the missing limb, that this cost-benefit analysis will become in favor of the prosthesis. And also, there's some really exciting research that are improving the interfaces with the human body to make it more comfortable. That's not really what we're active in, at least not at the moment, but there are some fantastic researchers in the world who are doing things like what's called osseointegration, where you're actually implanting a titanium rod into the, into the, the bone structure through the amputation site, and then you can attach the prosthesis to that, to that rigid structure, which is then rigidly attached to your bone rather than softly attached to your skin. And that could vastly improve the quality of life that lower limb amputees and, and even upper limb amputees would, would experience. 
I was uh, reading on, on one of there was an article about uh, an arm prosthesis where the the way that the interface uh, with the arm and I I didn't write this question down I was just reminded of it um, that the nerve function in his brain was still able to he, the, the, not quite phantom limb but his the uh, the nerve function in his brain was still able to uh, operate the prosthesis yeah so uh if you think about it it's like uh you have like in your house you have uh, electricity and you have cables so imagine you uh there's a wall that i don't know there was a there was a problem and the wall uh, falls there's still cables inside that you can send signals, and it's just a matter of fact of finding those cables, like in this case, it will be the nerves uh, that come from, well, that connect to the brain. If you're able to find those nerves that connect to, that used to connect to those muscles, uh, you can do incredible things like uh, the ones you were talking about. It's fascinating. Um, so reading and watching some of these videos, I, I can imagine that these can be life-changing to a person with the right attitude and who it interfaces. Do you have any favorite success stories in your work or research where uh, something like this has happened? Your, your favorite success story of changing someone's life with the prosthesis uh, or exoskeleton? Well, I will say that we are just in the beginning stages of doing patient trials. Um, so these devices are still prototypes. They're still one of a kind. Um, and they don't often leave our lab. In fact, this is the first time this yeah. this exoskeleton has left our lab. So, so enjoy. Uh, <laughs> when we start going down the path of commercialization, we'll be working with a lot more patients. But we are working with some patients already, and, and uh, we have not studied this scientifically. But anecdotally, the patient subjects have reported some pretty promising um, uh, perceptions uh, when using these devices. For example, when using uh, our robotic leg. Uh, one lower limb amputee subject reported that after walking for three hours on a robotic leg, he felt like he could walk for another three hours. Whereas if he was walking on his conventional take-home leg, he would be done for the day after walking for three hours. And that's because, again, it's like walking on stilts. You're constantly focused on maintaining your balance, and it's not actually injecting any energy as you walk. Whereas the powered legs that we're developing are more like your biological legs, and hopefully you can walk around on that for a few hours and, and keep going. And that, that, that's really the goal. And so anecdotally, we have some really promising results initially. So how long before we get to the, uh, the 1970s TV series, Six Million Dollar Man, where we are building a person better, stronger, and faster? Um, where where in, the, in the trajectory of being able to, like you were saying, exosuits, yeah. um, and actually having a human body look like a human body, but with this juiced up robotic things. <laughs> uh, I was hoping that the Rio would, would, would speculate on this so that I wouldn't get myself into trouble, but uh, if he's going to pass the baton to me, then uh, I'll try. So uh, I, I think that we are going to see over the next few decades uh, some, some incredible augmenting technologies. I don't think that we're going to end up seeing people voluntarily getting amputations so that they can have a better leg. I don't see that happening anytime soon. But I do see things like uh, people, the, the concept of, of disability, or at least the concept of, of inaccessibility, I see that disappearing. Okay, so, so not that disability will ever really 
um, disappear. I mean, it's it's not just a physical thing. It's also it's also a, um, a community um, thing as well. But the idea of not being able to have access, I think, will be disappearing. Um, and so, meaning our assistive technologies will become so good that there is no limitation to what one person can do versus another. Uh, in terms of augmenting uh, fully able-bodied individuals, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think we have a long way to go. Uh, maybe within my lifetime, I'm not sure. <laughs> So uh, you, you brought up a very good point about equal access. I can imagine that even if it were commercially available, this prosthesis would cost hundreds or thousands of times the amount that a standard prosthesis would. Um, how does that factor into the commercial viability, commercial support of laboratories? Yeah. Uh, how does that go into the, uh, the, the trajectory of where this will go? Well, you raise a good point that this type of device is kind of like the Cadillac of, of an exoskeleton, right, or of a prosthesis. It's uh, or a it's, Tesla. Uh, a te Tesla, yeah. Like it's a better, it's a better analogy. Um, so uh, that is true. However, the fact that this costs more in, in parts than a conventional prosthesis doesn't necessarily mean that the final price you would pay to an insurer or something, or the, that the insurer would pay to the to the company would be would be any different. So, for example. Uh, prosthesis today could cost you $100,000, even though I guarantee you that in parts it costs probably a few thousand. Um, now, why is that? Uh, I'll let you speculate about why that is. Um, a lot of regulatory issues that, that increase the cost of both medicines and, and uh, medical devices. But um, if, we, if those regulatory issues are applied equally, I mean, I don't think this would actually cost all that much more than, uh, than conventional devices are. That's amazing. So, Dario, you came to the U.S. four years ago. Yes. That's Tell right. us about your the transition between school here and school there, and also how this work, how you can do this work here that you may not be able to do there. How, how do you see this transition, even though you're not that far away? Yeah, so, as you say, I have been here for four years, and of course, uh, the university where I went to in Mexico, it was uh, really good in terms of uh, robotics, but it lacked all the funding that you can get in the US. So here in a lab in the US, you can get enough money to fund projects like, like this. So that was uh, one of the biggest uh, changes that I had, that for the first time I was able to play with some, uh, with some, actual, with some actual toys. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> so uh, other than that, uh, yeah, the technology, Right now, it's uh, more evolved in the U.S. than in Mexico, so that's why that is one of the reasons that made me come to the U.S. to study my Ph.D. I was going to be able to, to work with the best and learn from the best. Are any other countries doing this sort of work? Uh, yeah, sure. So, like uh, Professor Craig was saying, uh, in I know like in there's uh, Sweden, there's France, Germany, uh, I think uh, the U.K. In different countries around the world are are doing. Uh, similar type of, uh, of work. So uh, also in your bio, you talk about a, a nonprofit that you run in, I'm sure, your spare time um, called Inspira or Inspira. Yeah. So Can you tell us about that? Sure. So the, the non-for-profit organization that I'm running uh, with some friends, uh, we started a couple of months ago. And the idea is that we're trying to reach uh, and do scientific outreach with all the Hispanics uh, community in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And the idea is to inspire uh, kids to to get 
more attention into science because we noticed that at least in the in the lab I'm uh, the only Mexican, not the only Latino, uh, but across UTD you don't see a lot of uh, Hispanics uh, studying uh, graduate studies uh, or engineering degrees, and that's something uh, we would like to to change or at least to to put it on the spotlight so everyone knows, all the kids know that they can uh, in the future go and study uh, or become a scientist. I think that was what was so interesting about both the book and the, the film is that it, it gives, it, it shows four very unlikely kids get inspired and that it really is more about the, the inspiration to go do it and then just go run and make it happen. So, um, where do you see this? You talked a little bit about it. Where do you see this sort of work going in uh, 10 or 50 years? And what other sorts of subdivisions or related technologies um, are going to, to come out of it in terms of helping the entire human condition? Yeah, so as uh, Professor Greg was saying, like, uh, you could, yeah, well, uh, we have seen that technology gets smaller and cheaper every, every year. So that will help with the cost. So, and eventually something that it's, uh, it could be a little bulky, like this one, we will get smaller and smaller. And I think it's just a matter of fact of uh, evolution in, in terms that humans have always done uh, tools to help themselves or make themselves better. So we have cars, we have uh, computers, and I just see it like a, a normal step on the evolution process to, to start designing this to make it uh, smaller, to make it more uh, compact, uh, more affordable to everyone. Now, do you have a dissertation topic yet? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us about it? Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, I'm working specifically on figuring out how you can synchronize the motion of the of the person with an amputation and the prosthetic leg, uh, in the sense that it, when it, when he or she is walking, it will feel natural. It will feel like it's uh, his or her own leg. Uh, and I do this by uh, doing, well, we, we do all this using one single sensor that you put on, on, the, on the limb of the person, on the residual uh, side of the person. Uh, and we're testing that right now. <laughs> so, yeah. You can, see, you can see videos on our uh, website or on our YouTube page. And tell us what's uh, in, in store in the, at the, uh, in the lab. Well, we, we have a lot of projects right now. Um, we have a research staff of about 15 people, uh, and so 10 of those are PhD students, and five of them are research staff, uh, either part-time or full-time. And so we have projects in pros active prosthetics. We have projects in exoskeletons. We have projects in what Dario was talking about, kind of make things less, less bulky and rigid in terms of what we call conformable soft um, exoskeletons. Not really skeletons at that point. They were more, more like you said, exosuits. Um, so we're working in that. Uh, we are even working on some autonomous robots. Uh, so uh, this, all this, this, this has some autonomy in it. But the idea is that this should not be walking on its own. It should be helping someone walk, right? Um, the person should be the autonomous one, right? Um, whereas you can imagine a full robot that could be walking on its own, and and. That is an incredibly, incredibly difficult thing to do. I mean, we, we, we for the most part, walk pretty well, um, as a species at least. And, uh, and reproducing human-like locomotion on, a, on a, a robot is incredibly difficult. You can do a Google search for the 
DARPA Robotics Challenge, and this was the cream of the crop in, in, in legged locomotion in, in the, of the world, this competition, and you can see highlights of robots falling over, and it's a lot of fun. Um, a lot of falls, but I will say, though, that we did, as a, as a, as a field, really make some great advances, and so we're to the point now where, where an autonomous legged robot can now Presumably, during a, during a uh, disaster, for example, a nuclear power plant like Fukushima could bust through walls, turn valves, um, and go into toxic environments that humans cannot. So we're getting there. We're getting there. And, and so there's a lot of different areas of leg locomotion that the lab is interested in. And so um, we have kind of our, our fingers in all those areas. Let's uh, take some time. Are there any audience questions? And uh, what I'll do is after I uh, after you ask your question because we're recording, I'll repeat it. Sure. So just that's the way I'll be doing that. In the back, have you experienced any pushback from the medical community on your prostheses? Okay, so uh, I would say that the, the the clinicians that we have worked with have been incredibly supportive. Um, in fact, they welcome uh, my students to to uh, do rounds with patients with them. They welcome them to audit clinical courses for prosthetic students. Um, they support our experiments with their time and effort, sometimes voluntarily, um, rather, you know, not necessarily us paying them. And so they've been very supportive. I think that the clinicians really see the need, and that's, of course, fueled by their, by their, their patient population, right? Um, now, prosthetics companies could be a different story. Um, of course, they have their own product lines to protect, right? Uh, just like any company ha has their own product lines to protect and any kind of competition um, could be a threat to that. So it's been harder for us to penetrate into the, the commercial market, but I think once we have clearly shown the benefit to patients, uh, they won't hear the end of it eventually, right? And they'll have to, uh, they'll have to invest in these things. But also keep in mind, it's not, it's not all you know, that... These companies are against progress, <laughs> technologically speaking. Now, also keep in mind that it takes a lot of, of development, uh, investment to bring a product to market. And despite you know hearing all about how uh, how wars abroad have have increased the number of, of amputees in the world, um, still the the, the general population of amputees is very small. We're talking um, maybe over a million people in the U.S. And a million people is not a large market for bringing a product to market. Um, now, the population of stroke patients is a huge market. That's, that's hundreds of millions, and across the world at least. And so technologies like, like this exoskeleton may have a better chance of being commercialized just based on market forces. It's a much harder, much harder sell to commercialize a... Spend, spend millions and millions of dollars in getting, getting the regulations and everything for a market that's just a million people, even though it sounds like a lot of people. It's really not a big market share. Yeah. Nick, over here. The interface between artificial intelligence and their work. So, okay. <laughs> Let's think about it. So artificial intelligence by itself, it's... Uh, it's an algorithm that it's going to learn from its mistakes and everything. Uh, the approach we take is uh, it's different. So I will say that in our lab, we don't do a lot of artificial intelligence. Uh, we try to do it more from the physical side. So basically using uh, like forces and moments and 
uh, equations. So I guess the, the difference is that uh, for artificial intelligence, there's a, a lot of potential in different applications. Uh, in terms for the prosthetic leg, I don't think there is a, a clear uh, objective using it. I don't know if you have anything else to add. Yeah, I mean, artificial intelligence is kind of a generic concept. It can mean a lot of things, right? Yeah. And so for us, I mean, we certainly program intelligence into the legs, right? Yeah. And it's, it's, art, it's artificial in a sense, but it's not the uh, kind of artificial. Artifi yeah. yeah, it's not the kind of AI that you would hear about in the movies, you know, that you know that can think for itself. <laughs> like, bad, yeah, yeah, right, right. The, the, the exoskeletons are not sentient. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And we're not trying to make them that way either. <laughs> That's what they said about HAL in 2001. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Next question. Over here. Advice for an elementary age uh, robotics team. So, yeah, and as you say, the only thing I can tell you is my experience from Mexico. But I was also raised in a family of engineers. So that actually changes a lot. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the youngest one in my family, and I have two older brothers that are engineers, and my dad as well, and my grandfather. So in my house, it was all about uh, putting pieces apart, like breaking things apart, and then putting it back together. Uh, sometimes they will work, uh, sometimes they won't. But I think uh, it's all about uh, the, the curiosity, and I think as long as the, the kids are motivated, and they see a purpose on doing it, it should be good enough to to keep them interested on the on the subject. <laughs> yeah, I I, I kind of uh, when I, when I grew up in the '80s, I, I didn't. It kind of gives away my age. I, I, <laughs> we didn't have robotics teams when I was in when I was in high school or, or younger. Um, we did have computer clubs, <laughs> and that's that's what initially got got me interested into this area. I guess initially. Um, but nowadays, there's such great hobbyist um, uh, things you could do, right? With, with Arduino boards and maker bots and 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 quad rotor aircraft, and, and it's just incredible. So I'm I think that that there is there is enough information on the internet uh, in support in support groups on the internet in terms of helping people learn how to use these things. That that you, you, if you're if you're a high school kid. You could buy an Arduino board for less than $100, and you could learn how to program a, a, a controller for a robot and uh, at least do some basic servoing with, uh, with little motors and stuff. I mean, it, it, we're in an age now where the hobbyist uh, push is really fantastic for the field. Um, I will say, though, in terms of, of, of the, the getting kids interested into, in what we do, I often advise them... Uh, they, they often ask me, so what, what field should I go into to do what you do? You know, should it be do electrical engineering? Should I do mechanical engineering, computer science? And I tell them, you, you can't be an expert in all the things that is needed to do this. That's why we have a team of 15 people. <laughs> and we have biomedical engineers, we have electrical engineers, we have mechanical engineers, we have everything. Uh, as long as you pick one, that's, one discipline that's interesting to you and you, and you master it, and you learn to work in teams, which I'm sure your robotics club, you know, they're learning that right now, I'm sure. Working in teams is really important. Then they'll be able to participate in interdisciplinary research in, in projects of this type of scope. Um, so I think that, just like the Rio said, if they're motivated and they're interested in at least one of these sub-disciplines, they'll, they'll have a great future ahead of them. Questions in the way in the back. 
What are the materials that the exoskeleton is made of, and how did you get the materials? How much is it worth? So, I, I mean, in terms of materials, uh, so the expert, what is it? It's, 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 it's aircraft aluminum. Okay. Um, yeah. It's, it's uh, in, carbon, in carbon fiber. At the moment, we're focusing on lower limb, which is our grand challenge. There's also, of course, grand challenges in upper limb stuff, but it turns out 90% or more of, of amputees are lower limb amputees, primarily due to cardiovascular-related uh, issues like diabetes. Um, but as for uh, how, how, how we pay for it, <laughs> your taxpayer dollars are, are paying for this. We have uh, re a research budget of around $3 million dollars. Um, funded in most part by the federal government through research grants, which of course are competitive, you know, grants that we apply for and are reviewed by by experts in the field and awarded to to projects that they deem worthy. So hopefully, uh, thankfully for us, they they awarded some of these grants to us and that's been uh, funding uh, the Rio's time and, and Leon's time and, and everyone else and, and also the parts, you know, we buy the parts uh, directly from the vendors um, but of course, there's a lot of custom machining involved. Like everything here is custom except for certain little components. Time for one more question over here in the yellow. Hi, Pat. Over here. Are there any interesting challenges about the starting and stopping of the movement of the leg? So, uh, are you, are you talking about the prosthetic leg, uh, or? Well, yeah. So there's always, and I think. It kind of relates to the previous question about artificial intelligence. Uh, these machines, they will follow the, the human, but at the same time, they need to be smart enough to know when you're going to start walking and when you need to stop. And that's something uh, really difficult to, to accomplish, actually. Just to, for us, it's really trivial. It's really easy for us to tell when you are, uh, want to start walking or stop. But for the machine, they need to know in advance, more or less, uh, a couple of milliseconds in advance when you're going to stop. Uh, so actually, part of uh, my research uh, takes on that question, like how, how can you uh, predict when a person is going to start walking and stopping and make that transition uh, as smooth as possible. So in, in, my, in my case, I, like I was mentioning, we only use one sensor, which is on the thigh. So uh, I do it by measuring uh, the movement of the thigh when a person is walking. And based on that information, I can make uh, a smart guess of when the person wants to start walking or the, whenever they want to stop. Yeah. We do a lot of what we call reverse engineering, how humans walk. Yeah. And so uh, Dario spends a lot of time doing studies with, with fully able-bodied subjects, understanding how they walk, and then trying to reproduce that uh, on, on our devices. And so it's definitely human-inspired. So does this make you really incredible poker players by being able to study this kind of human behavior and little movements well if, if they play poker with their legs yes <laughs> <laughs> otherwise i don't think so <laughs> okay we're going to wrap it up and we wrap it up with a with the top 10 shorties and these are rapid fire this is our rapid mm -hmm. fire lightning round and uh these are divided into categories we have categories of food music books television and movies and I will give you an either or, and you just tell me immediately which one you choose. And we'll, we'll just do one. Well, you can say first, and you'll do second. Okay. Are we ready? Yes. We're going to start with the food category. Pizza or hamburgers? Pizza. Pizza. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Chocolate, of course. <laughs> For the music category, Beatles or Rolling Stones? Ooh, Rolling Stones. Beatles. <laughs> 
Britney Spears or Madonna? Madonna. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Books. Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. The joy of cooking or the joy of sex? <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> both? <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Moving on to television. Game of Thrones or Walking Dead? Game of Thrones. Ooh, uh, Walking Dead. Survivor or The Amazing Race? Survivor. Amazing Race. And our last category, movies. Gone with the Wind or Wizard of Oz? Wizard of Oz. Gone with the Wind. And last, Wally or BB-8? <sighs> Wally. <laughs> Wally. <laughs> All right. Let's give let's give a great round of applause for Dario <laughs> and Dr. Greg. And I'll turn it over to Kitty, and she will wrap us up. Oh, I love their reaction to the joy of cooking or the joy of sex. <laughs> A quick reminder that I neglected to mention earlier was that one of the foci for air this year, especially for season seven of Airtime, is to focus on STEAM. Everybody's heard about STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. But you add the A in there to make it STEAM, and you add the arts, which we feel is a critical component of a well-rounded, solid thinker. So you will notice a theme this year in our airtime events where the A is added to STEM and we have STEAM. Tonight is one example, and uh, we are so pleased with both of your participations this evening. Anyway, and very quickly, a thank you to Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in Richardson again. Well-deserved applause, I must say. And also to Eric Wise of Weltstar Advisors, Half Price Books, who is in the lobby, by the way, with Spare Parts, the book, for sale. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now appearing nightly. Um, no, seriously, though, if I know many of you have already read the book, but if you, even if you have, now is a great opportunity to buy an extra copy to give to a friend because we all know what a great book it is and how much fun, they, what a good read it is. Anyway, and lastly, um, I just wanted to remind everybody, uh, airtime may be new to some of you. And if it is, we're delighted you're here. For those of you who are regulars, we're delighted you're here. Um, if you miss some airtime uh, presentations, go to the AIR website at artsincubatorrichardson.org or to iTunes and our previous interviews or podcast. So you can hear some of the exciting things that have gone on before. Um, lastly, the next airtime is on October the 19th, right here, same place, featuring Jason Underwood and Blake Milton of Archie's Guitars. It's a brand new establishment right across the parking lot. They are the, the guitar shop for 75080, whether you are a first buy or need lessons or an experienced guitarist. So come hear them share about their journey and they're local. So it'll be really fun to hear. And the movie that night, Wayne's World. <laughs> anyway, thank you all and thank you all. <laughs>